All right. Hello. Welcome to episode 130 of Decentralized Revolution. Of course, it's a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. Uh, my name is Aaron Harris. I'm your host. Uh, I am back from uh, Taiwan. Uh, we had a couple of hiccups there, Mike being a new father and me being gone. Uh, but we should be back on the the regular Monday night tip for um, for a while now. And when I was gone, I woke up uh, one morning and saw all the news about the uh, the stuff in Palestine. And I was like, I don't want to have to think about this on my vacation, so I didn't. And but when I got back, I went to the Libertarian Institute and AntiWar.com and uh, got up to speed thanks to Kyle Anzalone and Scott Horton and Dave DeCamp and all those guys. So uh, I thought, hey, there's a lot going on. So uh, Kyle Anzalone, thanks for coming on so you can straighten us all out and, and tell us what's going on. Yeah, I hope I could give you the update you're looking for. And thanks so much for having me back on the show there. There is a lot going on, but everybody, it is okay to take a couple weeks and enjoy some vacation. <laughs> you, you know, it, it, it gets heavy. So, you know, taking some time to uh, avoid burnout is an important part of, you know, advocating for any kind of important political movement. Well, how do you do it? Because like, you know, I, I do, I send out emails for the pack and, um, do different things and I have a day job. And so I'm not like hip deep in the, the, the absolute worst news of the day every day, like, like you guys are. So what, what's a typical day like for you and how do you, how do you manage that, uh, uh, not, you know, avoiding burnout issue? Uh, you know, uh, I guess I just kind of, I, I'm pretty good about once I get into a routine, I'm able to stay in that routine. Um, I got a couple dogs here, uh, some beautiful huskies that are pretty much always around me. And so, uh, you know, just having the goofy dogs to balance out and taking my dogs for a walk and playing with them and stuff like that is, is pretty good. Uh, you know, having a nice wife who, uh, you know, I could talk to or just, you know, have fun with is also, you know, nice distractions. And then, you know, for a typical day, I spend morning. So I live on the East Coast. So I wake up uh, pretty early. I read the news pretty much all morning, opinion articles, really try to get a handle on uh, everything going on and what I need to be prepared for. And then early afternoons, I, I you know, try to do a little bit of physical movement kind of stuff. Uh, you know, yard work, out with the dogs, walking the dogs, maybe a short hike or something like that. And then, uh, you know, about two o'clock, I start writing for the day and um, I'll just plug away on as many news articles as I can write. Um, sometimes I, I'll write as many as three or four, but usually it's one or two. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it is um, one of those things where if you allow yourself to totally get caught up in anything and especially this, and especially, you know, when the villains are, are so villainous and the consequences are, are so um, just so horrible. And I haven't even delved into, you know, I've heard you talk about some of the, the video and the stuff from the Palestine stuff and just like incredible, just horrible stuff on both ends. And uh, so it's good to realize that, life is still there to be lived and to not go too far into that abyss. So I'm glad there are guys like you and Scott who, are, who are doing that. It's almost like you're the ER guys, you know, you see a lot of that trauma. And again, this is nothing compared to what people actually living this stuff uh, are, but um, yeah, I, I appreciate the, the, the work you guys do. Um, 
Yeah, just uh, mentioned, shout out to the real journalists in Palestine and particularly in Gaza who, you know, through this utter bombardment that, that is happening all the time, you know, they are uh, trying to capture and present to the world what's going on so we have an mm -hmm. idea. Yeah, so I actually have a little bit of a personal story on two of the um, uh, areas that we were going to talk about tonight. Of course, we want to get to the Ukraine stuff and to the Taiwan stuff. And everybody knows my connection to Taiwan if you've listened to the show, because I, I love it. Um, but on the Israel thing, so I went to grad school at uh, Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism in 03 and 04. And they have a, uh, as far as I know, they probably still have it. It's like a global journalism quarter where they pair you with some, you know, news organization somewhere in the world and you go, you know, work for them for three months and get that on your resume. And just about everybody like goes to London and does like economic, you know, Bloomberg and, and stuff like that. Well, um, one of my colleagues went to Japan that year and I, I went to Israel because um, I was like, hey, I just want to go. And it's um, it's really interesting. And this is, of course, um, so I was there in the spring, summer, early summer, late spring of 04, uh, which, you know, the stuff in Iraq was popping off and Abu Ghraib was just, uh, uh, that story broke while I was there. And I, I covered two things over there that really, really affected me. And at the time I had kind of lapsed from libertarianism back into like a neocon foreign policy stuff, um, uh, viewpoint I'm, a, I'm ashamed to say. And one of the things that kind of got me back going in the other direction, and I'd never really been really that interested in foreign policy and really read a lot of the libertarian thinkers on the foreign policy, but two experiences. One, um, again, I was the low man on the totem pole, an intern. So I was sent out to do man on the street stuff. And so when the Abu Ghraib story broke, they told me to go get man on the street stuff in Jerusalem, including in East Jerusalem. So for those who don't know, uh, East Jerusalem is mainly Palestinian. West is mainly uh, Jewish. The old city, uh, which is where you see all the postcard pictures from, is kind of, you know, governed loosely by this council of churches and different things, um, uh, sort of. Uh, and so I went out and I had to ask, um, you know, Palestinians and Jews about what do they think about these horrendous pictures. And I remember like asking, I remember one guy's face in particular, he was an Arab uh, Palestinian, probably in his 60s. And like, I asked him this question and I was as respectful as possible. And he answered my question, but like the look on his face was just like so confused and sad. And like, I could tell that he had very conflicting feelings to be talking to me. And I, I don't know if he thought I was Jewish um, or I, I'm sure he knew could tell I was an American. So like that just like affected me and just, it really bothered me. And the other thing that really bothered me and I, I said all that, you know, I'm talking a lot to kind of drive home what um, was really a very um, moving experience for me. They, so at the time they had uh, the Israelis had uh, right before I got there, they had blown up some sheik. I think his name was, I forget the guy's name. I won't even say it cause I think I'll get it wrong, but my school didn't want to let me go because with the Iraq stuff and with this, uh, attack on, uh, I think it was a Hamas affiliated guy, um, uh, in Gaza. They 
they didn't want me to go, but I went anyway. And then because of that rocket attack, there was some, uh, they had sent some troops into Gaza. I think it was kind of before they kind of completely closed it off and kind of had the, the, the policy they've had there the last few years, which you can elaborate on, but, uh, a kid got killed. Uh, he was a conscript doing his two years military service. His name is Lior Vyshinsky, L-I-O-R Vyshinsky. And it just so happened that both his mother, his father, and his stepfather were all famous actors in Israel. So not, you know, outside of Israel, nobody knows who they are, but they were apparently very famous inside Israel. And so my editor was like, I want you to go cover this funeral. And I'm like, uh, excuse me, <laughs> you want me to go do a, like ask quite, and they said, go ask the, the parents what they think about this because the father was very critical of Israeli, um, policy and was just distraught that his son had been killed and the boy's mother and stepfather were kind of supporting the government. And so I go to this, um, and I'm from, you know, my family is all from the South. And like, if a newspaper reporter showed up at a funeral in Tennessee or Kentucky, like that wouldn't go well. Right. They said, no, go ahead and go. So I went and the, the father did want to talk to the media and he was, I think he was drunk, um, understandably so. And he was just incredibly angry and would talk to anybody with a camera. And so I talked to him and I, his face was like right in front of mine. And he's pleading with me, like, please tell, you know, this is, we have no business there. My son died for nothing. Bloodshot eyes. I can see the guy's face, you know, just vividly right now, just like I could see the Palestinian man's face. And that's always stuck with me. And, and look, you know, 20 years later, the same, nothing's been solved. The The same, I forget, I think it was, I forget who was prime minister then. I think it might've been Barack. Uh, I know Olmert was the mayor of Jerusalem cause I got to meet him, but you know, 20 years later, nothing has really changed. If anything, it's gotten worse. And so and I, and I said all that to say something that Scott says all the time that in the news media, especially um, I think on the uh, mainstream American news media and the sort of conservative, news media commentary side, they do that truncating the antecedent thing that, that Scott talks about all the time. History started two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and Hamas are complete animals, right? And the conversation proceeds from there. And, you know, context is important and nobody is talking about the context of the last five years, 20 years, and then on back to to before 1948. So I, I just, um, I get really mad, uh, when I hear people saying things, uh, like they're saying about Palestinians. I know Justin Amash apparently had, uh, a first cousin, a cousin, a child cousin who I believe is a Christian. That's the other thing. Nobody mentions that there are Christians getting killed here too, because they want to make it the, the Jewish, uh, the Jews versus Muslims thing. Um, so this is like, I know Scott had some family, uh, a family member who was killed. Um, and so this is still happening and I get so angry about it and the willful disconnect from, I don't want to know anything about the history because I know Israel is a hundred percent right. And the circles I'm in, it's, it's the people who think Israel is a hundred percent right. And I know there are circles on the other side too. So, uh, I, 
I, I know that's a whole lot, but I just know that, that you guys, when you do your reporting and commentary, you try to, to keep that, um, context in there. So I don't know where to begin on something like this, but anything I've said there, what does it make you, uh, um, uh, think to say about, about what's going on right now? Oh, I lost you. Yeah, no, I mean, what a powerful, uh, story you have there. Um, if you have the article, please send it. I'd love to like actually read what you wrote at the time because that that's a, a really important story, I think, to tell. Uh, because it does seem, particularly from the American perspective, that there is a consensus in Israel that this is it, it's gone too far. We've tried to deal with the Palestinians in a humane way, but they've just proved themselves to be dogs, and so we have to now treat them like you would treat a pit bull who disemboweled a child right like you got to put them down and so you know having having any kind of nuance and context that is important and you know just on that point uh you know i'm the opinion editor at antiwar.com so if you go to that website every day you see the viewpoints in the spotlight article and we have run several articles from israeli media mainstream israeli media including harats where they are saying like look you cannot look at this in a vacuum You know, you cannot put two million people in what is essentially an open air prison and then not expect something like this to happen. Now, they're not saying we deserved it. Hamas was right or anything like that. They're just saying that this is a result of Israeli policy. And if we want something like this to not happen again, then, you know, we we need to go a different route in how we treat the the Palestinians. And so um, even though it seems like I guess a little bit different this time. Typically, I would say it seems like there's a full consensus in the American media that they're only going to present the Israeli narrative. But that does seem to have, have shifted a little t- this time around. And there are some, you know, some meaningful coverage of the Palestinian perspective on things. I was just driving around and uh, there was a, a Palestinian journalist who was really laying into the NPR interviewer explaining that what's going on uh, in uh, in Gaza in particular, that's an open air prison that Israel is looking to carry out this long term ethnic cleansing campaign. And that, you know, the, the power rests in Tel Aviv and therefore a lot of the responsibility for what's happening uh, rests in the hands of the Israeli government. And so I guess before we talk about this, right, it's important, to, especially from the perspective of a libertarian. One, I care about what my government is doing. Hamas is bad, but sitting here for an hour and talking about how awful Hamas is achieves nothing. And in fact, it kind of works against the goals that we have as libertarians, right? Because if we just talk about how bad Hamas is, then people are going to draw the conclusion that, oh, the American government has to do something about Hamas. And so, um, you know, Daniel McAdams likes to point this out where you should never do the work of the deep state for them. And and I think that's very important. So I'll go ahead and say now what Hamas did on October 7th and any kind of killing of Israeli civilians by Hamas was absolutely terrible. However, our government gives Israel about $4 billion every year in security assistance, right? And so the crimes that are committed by the Israeli military are being committed with my tax dollars. The U.S., Now, I'm not a big fan of international government and the UN, 
but the UN is the current platform for, you know, countries to try to look to resolve grievances and, you know, atrocities that are happening against a particular population. And the U.S. works very, very hard at the UN uh, to prevent Israel from receiving any kind of international accountability, including, you know, during the Trump administration, they went as far as to sanction the International Criminal Court for investigating Israel. You know, not that I'm supportive of the International Criminal Court, but if that court is investigating a third country, it's none of America's business whatsoever, particularly Washington. And so, you know, I really focus on the actions of the Israelis because what they are doing, they are doing with, you know, the U.S.'s government's backing and they're doing with my tax dollars. And then, uh, you know, just the other thing, when we're talking about these groups, when we're talking about Hamas, we're talking about a limited number of Palestinians. When we're talking about the Israeli government, we're talking about a small number of the Israeli people. Now, you know, there are Israeli people who support their government and, you know, openly advocate for their government committing atrocities. And there are Palestinians who do the same. And in both cases, you know, that's wrong. However, you know, when we're talking about Israel doing something wrong or Hamas doing something wrong on this podcast. We're not talking about Jews. We're not talking about Muslims. We're not talking about Arabs. We're talking about, you know, the particular power centers, the governments and the militaries that actually, in uh, the militias, you know, from, from the Palestinian side that, that actually kill innocent people. So let me, uh, that uh, you answered a lot of my next questions there, but specifically zone in on, on what Hamas is and how that differs from the different paramilitary things and the Palestinian people and, and talk about the, uh, the relationship between the Israeli government and Hamas and the other factions among, you know, the parties and stuff like that among the, uh, Palestinians, both in Gaza and the West bank set, set that context. Yeah. So, Hamas, answering what Hamas is, there's a lot of complications and nuance to it because uh, since 2007, Hamas has essentially been the government of the the Gaza Strip, right? And so there's a lot of people who work for Hamas who have civilian jobs who, you know, so compared to somebody who works for like the U.S. government, right? Somebody who's a trash collector in in Washington, D.C. or something like that. They do work for the federal government. But, you know, when you're talking about the U.S. government, you're not talking about those people. So, you know, when we're talking about Hamas, I think, particularly in the context of this show, we're talking about like um, their, their armed wing, you know, not their because they, they do have like civilian leadership, political leadership of that group. So we're talking about, you know, the armed wing and they are a militia. They say they're, I think, 40,000 strong. I would uh, assume that's an overstatement that that's some Hamas propaganda. Um, but who, you know, who knows now how many people under the relentless Israeli bombing campaign over the past three weeks have just gone and said, you know, my family is now gone. I'm a young man what are you going to do? You're, you're just going to become a refugee in Egypt. Or are you going to stay and fight? I, I, I could see some people join up for Hamas and their ranks being bolstered for that region. But, uh, you know, they have tens of thousands of fighters. They have low quality rockets. 
and some other pretty rudimentary military equipment. If people look at what happened on October 7th, they use uh, what parasails, paragliders, something like that, uh, powered by fans to fly over the wall, the, the border fence of their prison. And uh, from there, they carried out what seemed to be relatively indiscriminate attacks. Uh, from my understanding, the music festival where it, it seems the maybe the, the worst atrocities occurred by Hamas. Uh, it, it uh, from my understanding that was moved one or two days before the attack happened. My guess is this attack was planned long before one or two days ahead, uh, just based on you know the the amount of coordination that Hamas needed to do, and it probably had to almost all be done without cell phones and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what I mean? So this is a long term uh, planned attack, is my assumption here, and so. It, you know, maybe they didn't intend to land there, but they landed this rave that's going on. Also, the attack happened, I think, at like 6 a.m. Israeli time. So I don't know why they would assume that, you know, that the rave would have still been going on. Or if they want to attack you, you assume they go earlier, maybe. And I think Hamas has said that they were uh, attempting to hit a nearby military base. No idea if that's true or not. Um, and at the same, you know, so the, the extent of their military equipment and capabilities are unguided rockets, uh, motorbikes. They do have some drones, which they could apparently drop uh, munitions from that could tank out Israeli tanks. So that is a fairly sophisticated piece of military equipment. And you should also mention that there is the Palestinian Islamic Jihad in, um, in Gaza that also operates. And I don't want to say it operates, you know, against Hamas, but they're different organizations. And, and so, you know, that th they do different things. And apparently some of the raids that occurred either with or without coordination, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, you know, the kind put for that they took advantage of the Hamas attack to also uh, send some of their fighters outside of uh, the Gaza Strip. And so, you know, when you look at Hamas as this militant organization, and on October 7th, they certainly carried out uh, where in, in certain aspects, you know, a terrorist attack, right? They, they hit civilian targets. Um, you know, some of the people who are, you know, will put forward a narrative where uh, they, they tried to kidnap people. They really weren't looking uh, to kill a whole lot of Israeli uh, civilians. Now, there does seem to be uh, some attacks that were directed at civilians. There's people driving cars that were shot. Uh, children were killed this way. Children were killed inside their homes. Um, and you know, seemingly definitely by Hamas. I don't know if anybody's really putting up an argument that like Israeli did this part. Now there's a really important article by Mads Blumenthal today at the gray zone where he goes through and, and looks at and he, from testimony from Israeli survivors and military sources where they say that they indiscriminately fired on what were Hamas and civil Israeli civilians. And so some of the, the number that the Israeli government puts out is 1400 They've, I think, published about 700 names, uh, about 300 of those are military. So 400 civilians for sure, as many as a thousand civilians, uh, Israeli civilians killed. Some number of those do seem to have been killed uh, either in the crossfire or directly by the Israeli military. But um, certainly Hamas is responsible for a lot of those as well. And they have taken uh, anywhere between 200, 250, maybe 300 uh, Israeli captives. It's really hard to get good numbers on it. Uh, there's reports that up to 50 of them have been killed in Israeli airstrikes in the Gaza Strip, but I haven't seen any confirmation of that. They've released 
at least five, I, I think quite a few more uh, prisoners at this point. And Israel's refusing to negotiate on prisoner relief. Um, and I, in uh, Matz's article, he kind of puts forward the narrative that the uh, Hamas attack was directed at taking Israeli captives in order to trade them for Palestinian prisoners. There's about 10,000 Palestinian prisoners. Some of them are, are guilty of violent crimes and even in a libertarian society, you know, we would do something about these people. Uh, but huge numbers are political prisoners or, you know, kids that are in jail for throwing stones. And if you read about, you know, the, the way the Israeli courts work, we're talking about they go into a child's bedroom in the middle of the night, snatch a kid out of bed seven, eight, nine, you know, teenage kid. They stick them in a, a military courtroom with a couple of armed military police. A lawyer walks in, pushes a document in front of yeah. them. That's not in a language that they even read. It's going to be in Hebrew. Um, maybe they get to go and sit in front of an Israeli military court, but unlikely, you know, they're just going to sign this confession and uh, go to prison for a couple of years for, you know, throwing rots or something or being accused of throwing rots, I should say, uh, because it's not like they even really get a fair trial of any kind. And so, uh, you know, there's people who are pointing out that Hamas carried out this attack to try to free uh, the Palestinian prisoners in a swap. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but even uh, the Israeli government is kind of, I think, reacting to it as if it is because they're completely refusing any prisoner negotiations. They basically say release everyone and then, you know, we could talk about other things. But yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait, can I say one more thing? So yeah. for people who want to know the history of Hamas, because this is really important and, and there's a lot of details in here that I can't recite off the top of my head. Uh, but there has been a policy in Israel for a couple decades now, and really particularly since like 2007, when Hamas ends up controlling the Gaza Strip, where the Israeli government is fine with Hamas. Because they see Hamas as, and Hamas is a militant group that has done some atrocious things. And so they're able to say, well, if Hamas is in charge of the Palestinians, then there's nobody for us to negotiate with. Because how could you negotiate with Hamas? It would be like, you, you know, I think it's a part of the reason why the Bush administration said that Osama bin Laden was in cahoots with Saddam Hussein, because how can you be expected to negotiate with Saddam Hussein if he just directed our towers getting knocked down, right? This guy's yeah. a terrorist. And so, you know, they, they really like to use Hamas for that to say, oh, we can't negotiate with the Palestinians because you, you have Hamas here. And so there's a fantastic article. It's by Connor Freeman and Scott Horton. Connor's the co-host of my show, Conflicts of Interest. Uh, he's one of our editors at the Institute. And of course, Scott Horton, everybody knows. And they go through and they detail point by point, uh, you know, what Hamas is, what it's done and what the Israeli government has done and why Netanyahu has uh, helped to keep Hamas in power in Gaza and, and allow this to fester. Yeah. Um, so what has, um, what's, so I guess what's the end game for both sides here? So like, well, well, first let me say this. So like, I'm a Christian, I'm a pacifist, I'm an anarchist. So like, I'm not for any of the, the violence. Um, and, uh, yeah, hundred percent clear on that. Sometimes when people try to explain why something happened, it's taken, I think people on one side or the other will say, Oh, you're trying to make excuses, but like, that's why I'm a pacifist and an anarchist because like, if you use violence to get what you want, 
you're going to create ill will and just this cycle that spirals downwards. So like we've been cycling uh, on this for a long, long time now. And yeah, so uh, as always, the innocent people on either side get um, literally caught in the crossfire on this. So I look at it. So when my normie friends ask me about a political issue, usually the first thing I say is, always remember it's quite possible that both parties, uh, whether they be political parties or like Russia, Ukraine, you know, uh, that both parties to the argument or the debate or the controversy, it's quite possible that they're both wrong. Right. And so I take that, um, approach to, to all this stuff. And of course, like Scott says, you know, blame is not quantifiable. There's plenty of blame and stuff to go around. So, but, so what we have on either side is a bunch of gangsters um, uh, who run the, the Jewish uh, Israeli government, a bunch of gangsters who run Hamas and, you know, all the other, you know, Hezbollah and all the other groups that we're talking about. And so they are criminal organizations doing criminal things. So, um, and they have motivations, right? They want to stay in power, keep power, expand power, so why would Hamas do this? But maybe first, before we get to, to why Hamas did this horrible thing, what has been the Israeli government's overarching strategy toward dealing with the Palest- what they see as a Palestinian problem for the, for the last generation or so? Yeah, so in particular, the policy with Gaza has been to corral the 2.3 million people that live there. And by the way, of those 2.3 million, about 1 million, 50% are uh, under the age of 18, so children, and about 80% are refugees from other areas of you know what they consider Palestine, right, the rest of Israel. And so... Um, you know, the, the conditions in Gaza are not great. The UN had long estimated the, the Gaza Strip would be unlivable, unlivable by 2020. And, you know, fortunately, it hasn't uh, quite hit that level of desperation, but it, it's been pretty close. So, you know, this is a little segment, about 144 square miles, uh, 140 square miles located on the uh, eastern Mediterranean Sea. It does share a southern border with Israel, but are not Israel, Egypt, but uh, Cairo is firmly in the pocket of Washington and Tel Aviv. And so, um, and Israel is the overarching military power. So as we've seen, even when Egypt has wanted to bring aid into Gaza over the past three weeks, Israel has bombed that border crossing. And so, you know, a, a lot of people think they make a really good point where they say, well, why doesn't Egypt just let all the Palestinians in? As if that's, you, you know, what the Palestinians want or what the Egyptians want. Um, you know, they just assume that because I guess the Palestinians are Muslims, that they're just as likely Egyptians as they are Palestinians. Like there's no difference between the two. So why don't they just go live there? Um but, you know, Egypt, I think, is firmly in the pocket of Tel Aviv and Washington. And so, you, you know, there is that border crossing. But then Israel controls the other border crossing. They also control the coastline. And so uh, oftentimes over the past, you know, 15 years or so, uh, uh, the fishermen of Palestine of Gaza have only been able to travel a few kilometers off the coast, never to get out to the deep water to catch any really valuable or deep, uh, fi- uh, you know, fish. Um, then you have the Israeli government intentionally limiting the number of calories that the, the Gazans have. Uh, they, they've called it, they put the Palestinians on a diet. They don't want them to starve. 
because that would cause, you know, an international crisis. They don't want it to look like Somalia or Ethiopia where, you know, then celebrities are like, why are these children looking like this and really start to go? But they also don't want the Palestinians to have a chance to thrive. There's like 50 or 60% unemployment in Gaza uh, prior to all of this. And, you know, the, the situation has gotten so bad that in 2018, uh, the, the people of Gaza essentially put their hands in the air and marched towards the wall of uh, the, the Gaza prison. And the Israeli snipers gunned them down, including paraplegics, you know, people without legs sitting in a wheelchair, children uh, as young as 13 year old uh, shot uh, by Israeli snipers, medics and journalists shot in the back. Yeah, uh, women just, you know, so I, w- I want to explain what that was. So there was a name for that. And it was a they they told they said they were going to do it and they said it was a peaceful thing. Right. So you said they marched toward the wall, but they they were. Civ- it, it was called the Great March of Return. Yeah. Right. Right. So it wasn't a, a spontaneous militia uprising. It was a, you know, MLK Gandhi type thing. And they were shot for their troubles. Right. I mean. Yeah, far, far more peaceful than a lot what was happening in a lot of American cities in 2020. You know, yeah. what was going on. Yeah. You know, they were throwing like the tear gas canisters back as the Israelis. They were throwing rocks at the border wall. Uh, they did roll some flaming tires towards the border wall. But, you, you know, in fairness, that was to obstruct the vision of the Israeli sniper. So, yeah. Um, you know, it, I would say was nonviolent, you know, essentially in every way, I guess, attacking the wall of your prison could be violated, you know, a violence if you're the prison guard, but it, yeah. you know, th- these people don't belong in prison. It's a problem. So, so what's the, the, so this has been the policy for a long time, you know, isolating Gaza, you know, severely restricting what goes in and out. So when I was in uh, Israel, I was allowed to go to, uh, being a Christian, I wanted to go to Bethlehem and Nazareth on my day off. And I, I did that on two separate occasions. I went to Ramallah and walked around a little bit. Um, so you could go to the West Bank. You could not go to Gaza then, partly because of the 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 conflict that was going on then. But it, it's Gaza has been, to my understanding, for a long, long time, much more closed off than the, the West Bank. But like, so okay, we're going to turn this into an open air prison and then what? So like, what is their, uh, ultimate, do do they have a stated goal for why they're doing this? Do they just want to hope like they, like, are, are they actually like a, is it a slow motion genocide? Is it a, until we get somebody we can, what's their stated goal and what's like the, is there an analysis of what they're actually trying to, to accomplish? Uh, and, and, even talk about before this, this latest uh, attack, because that I want to set the stage for why, what uh, Hamas was thinking. In other words, why they thought this was a good strategic move. And that would have been dictated by what they perceived the Israeli long-term goal with Gaza to be. Yeah. So, you know, there's kind of three different classes of Palestinians. There's about 20 percent of the population of Israel, you know, the areas that aren't the West Bank or the Gaza Strip or the Golan Heights 
are Palestinians. So they're Arab Israelis and they, they live essentially as, you know, second or third class citizens. And then you have the people of the West Bank. And when you hear that Israel is an apartheid state, you know, this is really the group of people they're talking about They're especially now uh, the Palestinians kind of are all segregated in all their little Bantu stands, you know, uh, the, the, Israelis have put settlers between the Palestinian towns and have taken over Palestinian towns. They have settler-only roads. The Palestinians had to go through to, through checkpoints. And so when you see that little like B or figure eight shape in the east of Israel, it's really not a continuous state anymore. You know, it's like a reverse Swiss cheese or something like that. You know, you have a little isolated Palestinian communities at this point. And, um, you know, Israel re regularly carries out raids in, in this area. Uh, a couple of years ago, one of the most renowned Palestinian journalists, uh, Shireen Abu Akleh, was uh, gunned down while wearing a press vest. An Israeli sniper shot her in the neck. And, uh, you know, Israel said, oh, we didn't do it. It was the Palestinians. And then all these human rights groups in the CNN, the Washington Post were like, well, there weren't any Palestinian militants there. And then Israelis are like, well, it was us, but she was asking for it. And so that's the end of that story. Um, but uh, so, you know, the, the people of the West Bank essentially live in these apartheid conditions. And now the people of Gaza, it's different. They're in like this isolated prison camp, right? Where Israel controls everything, including if you're a six-year-old girl in Gaza and say you have some kind of horrific cancer that they can't treat at the Gaza City Hospital. And so they have to send you uh, to the West Bank or to East Jerusalem where they have or, you know, abroad to Turkey or Jordan or something like that um, to, to where you could get medical treatment. Well, the Israelis may let you go, but good luck getting an adult that you're related to to get also get approval to travel uh, outside of Gaza. And, you know, think about that. Like if you're a parent, you have to send your six-year-old who has some kind of near terminal cancer with a, almost a complete stranger to go get medical treatment. You know, just this is the level of isolation and oppression that the, the people of Gaza face. And so, um, you know, uh, in the wake of the Israeli bombing campaign, you know, you've seen people of Gaza marching through the streets saying, you know, they would rather be killed by an Israeli airstrike in their neighborhood uh, to die on their feet rather than evacuate and move to Egypt and, and die on their knees where they're, you know, just going to rot in a refugee camp where nobody cares about them. So, uh, you know, the situation for the people of Gaza is truly, truly horrific. And now, look, Aaron. I don't think that the Israeli government would prefer all the all the Palestinians to die, right? Like, I don't think that they, you know, wake up every morning thinking, oh, we want to kill Palestinians or something like that. But if they were all gone tomorrow, it would solve an awful lot of problems for the Israeli government. And, and that's the way they look at it. And so I think really up until October 7th, you know, the it would have been more appropriate to describe it as like an ethnic cleansing campaign where basically they want to make the Gaza Strip so unlivable for the Palestinians that live there. They voluntarily leave and go live in a refugee camp somewhere in Egyptian territory and then become Egyptians and give up their complete claim to the Gaza Strip and then Israel could have it. Now, since October 7th, I think 
you know, you're getting to the point where you could start to think about using the, the genocide word to describe what is Israel is doing here, where, you know, it's not just that they want you gone. They're willing to actively wake up in the morning and kill you to do it. And by the way, there's a lot of Israeli government officials just absolutely celebrating the the, the murder of the uh, um, Palestinian people in Gaza. Yeah, there's different. My understanding is it's a it's a parliamentary democracy. And so therefore, different people in the coalition are of differing, you know, subgroups and all that. And, and Netanyahu's government has people who are more, even more right wing than he is, correct? Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a, a particular minister, Ben Gavir, who actually has a lot more power and influence in the West Bank uh, than in, in Gaza. But this man is a violent racist who um, there's a, a rabbi, Rabbi, um, it's Kane, but I think it's pronounced a little bit differently, K-A-N-E. Um, and he was actually, you know, deemed a terrorist by the Israeli government uh, for what he did and wasn't allowed to be in Israeli politics. And uh, Ben Gavir worships him. And that's, you know, kind of his um, outlook for what is the Israeli state should be, which is a, you know, militant Jewish state. Uh, you know, deemed at building the best world possible for the Jews at, and at the expense yeah. of the others. Yeah, I think you're talking about it's. Uh, I looked it up and I was right. Meyer Kahan. Yes. Um, yeah, it's like a rat, like a super radical Zionist party. Um, I think that guy was like from Brooklyn or something, but uh, oddly enough, um, I believe that yeah. he was killed somewhere in New York City. Yeah, he. Yeah, he, it. Uh, I remember talking to. Um, uh, uh, I'm going to have Sheldon Richmond back on at some point, but uh, here's uh, Sheldon's book coming to Palestine. Uh, Sheldon uh, talked a little bit about that guy. Um, and uh, yeah, so yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it, it seems like, um, I don't know, something's happened too over my lifetime that, and I don't know, I think it's really been since World War II that the American government has kind of set this tone of like, we just don't negotiate with anybody. Like I think they, you know, Kissinger, I guess they did negotiate an end to the Vietnam war because they lost. Right. But like every other time, like they're, you know, when's the last time you heard an American president say, we need to sit down either, uh, um, you know, uh, something we're a party to or somebody, uh, that other people are a party to, we just don't negotiate. I mean, I guess the Camp David thing with Carter and then the, the stuff with uh, Clinton and uh, Rabin and, and um, Arafat. And those were kind of anomalies, I think in my lifetime of like an American president actually wanting to get peace. And obviously neither of those things worked. And I, I've heard different people on both sides of the say that, about the Camp David thing and the, what the Oslo Accords were both, there was bad faith on both sides. So, so like, I guess to, we could talk all night about this, but like, what, um, what's the outcome from here Do is there ever going to be any sort of like talks over this or is this, or is this going to just, is Israel going to do the ground invasion or what do you see? What do you see happening? Well, you know, I think you make a really important point there, and I think it will kind of answer the question in part, which is 
there was once a point where diplomacy and negotiation was something that happened generally in the United States. And uh, I mean, the Bush administration, not really, but you know, Barack Obama ran on a policy of getting along better with Russia. You know, they were supposed to have the Russian reset and restore the relationship that Bush blew, blew up. Um, you know, Donald Trump was uh, you know, ruthlessly attacked for, say, wanting to negotiate with anyone. And so I think it's, you know, really been since the Donald Trump administration that we've shifted from, uh, you know what, Obama did get blown up for doing the JCPOA by the by the, the Iran nuclear deal by yeah. the Republicans. Yeah, but, the one good thing he the one good thing he did is the one thing that the Republicans harp on the most but he did get that done right and there was i guess you know enough support to get it done where today you can't bat down from anything anywhere or you're capitulating to evil right i I mean this is absurd to the point where you know we have sanctions starving syrians and uh uh afghans to death all the time right like constantly just just destroying these countries and intentionally so making sure uh they can't rebuild from decades or a decade-long war in that country and and um you know, you can never bat down and negotiate with anyone. If if we negotiate an end to the war in Ukraine, oh, that's uh, capitulating to Putin. If you negotiate anywhere, it, you know, the, it's per, uh, phrased as capitulation. And so that means you have to have utter dominance over everyone. But yeah. that's the most childish and stupid way to look at the world and the globe ever, that you can't go around the world and say, you know what? Russia is a very powerful and important state in Asia. And so, you know what? We're not going to try to admit Ukraine into NATO. And Russia does get to draw some red lines. And guess what? You know, there's just not a lot of American interest in the Middle East. And so, you know, Bashar al-Assad in Syria, he's a bad guy. The Taliban, they're not good people. But guess what? We're not going to try to end the regime or demand the Afghan or Syrian people overthrow their governments. We're just going to let them do what the Afghans and Syrians are going to do. And it better if those people are free, right? Like that, for, from my perspective, if the Afghan women had more rights, that would be fantastic. But there's nothing I could do as a white man in America to possibly make that happen. And obviously, they've tried for 20 years to send our bombers over there to achieve that mission. And they absolutely can't. And so, you know, at some point you, you have to admit that and admit that diplomacy and negotiations are the way to move forward and, and they just can't. And so I, I'm worried here that the Biden administration has set the standard that Israel, we got your back, do what yeah. you want, gloves off. And how are they going to walk back from that now? Yeah. And, and I think that's really the problem. If the Biden administration doesn't say no to Israel, then Israel and they keep feeding them weapons, then Israel is going to keep using them on the Palestinians. And so, yeah. uh, you know, there are things that can get so horrific. Uh, you know, we, we had the uh, Baptist hospital bombing, which still completely unclear what happened there. A few hundred people are dead. That seems pretty certain. And uh, I think it's likely an Israeli attack. All the evidence that the Israelis put out that apparently indicted the Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad for that uh, has been debunked. And so I I think we're back to looking at that being an Israeli attack. And, And so horrors like that could maybe 
drive some momentum the other way. I just don't see it happening. The, the White House is just so deaf to any other kind of communication or reason. And they've decided that we're going all in on this and that's what they're going to do. And, and look at the juveniles and fools that we have actually probably in charge of U.S. foreign policy. I mean, you know, Joe Biden is a, a avowed Zionist and says the relationship between the U.S. and Israel is bone deep. Antony Blinken said, as long as America is around, it's going to support Israel. Now, yeah. You know what I mean? Assuming that Israel is going to outlive your own country. And, and you know, with other people in the administration like Antony Blinken and Jade Sullivan, uh, you just don't see anyone really saying like, boss, this is... Yeah. We just we just can't support this anymore. This is too ugly because yeah. these are all the people that chose to have the war in Ukraine who looked at a Russian offer to negotiate and not have that war and sent it back to Vladimir Putin and said, nope. Yep. No, I, I agree. I mean, I, to me, it goes back to in. Yeah. If if you really want to be disgusted, uh, anybody out there, just Google uh, Anthony Blinken and see what he's said about all this. And it's just pretty shocking. Um, his general stance on this. Uh, and so I think the best, I think the best we can hope for sadly is a return to the way things were on October 6th. Right. Like I don't see this thing. Uh, I don't even want to, uh, we could, yeah, we could get more depressed all night, but so let's pivot, uh, to Asia. And well, can I just say, can I, just <laughs> okay. say I don't think that could happen. Okay. And well, I, I don't think, think it could either, but I think that's the best thing that could happen. That's why I'm so pessimistic. Oh no, I think, I think we're past that at this point. I think Israel right. has done too much damage to the infrastructure in Gaza where you, to go back to October 6th, um, Gaza has to be able to support 2.2, 2.3 million lives. And at this point, with the destruction Israel's done to it, it probably can't and is probably not, you know, able to for years in the future. And so that means something has to give, right? Uh, and, and I do think that, you know, uh, as as well as capturing hostages, um, as well as, you know, evoke in, uh, provoking an Israeli response, uh, I think the the goal of Hamas was to break the status quo because they basically every single day the Palestinians were losing. They were losing a little bit more and a little bit more, and nobody cared. And so I think they basically just felt like they had to change things because the U.S. was about to, I, I think, getting close to signing a deal with the Saudis to basically promise Saudi Arabia a security guarantee and give them a nuclear program in exchange for the Saudis normalizing relations with Israel uh, without raising the Palestinian issue. And so they felt like they were losing all their backers, all their supporters, and that, you know, life every day is just getting a little bit worse. The Israeli government is getting a little bit more radical and they're, you know, getting all the, um, and by the way, the day before this happened, uh, the Israeli government made it so that males under the age of 60 couldn't go pray at the Alaska mosque in Jerusalem. And so, you know, just the insults and the, uh, you know, degradation of Palestinian culture, uh, that that slow erosion of what, it, you know, is Palestine uh, w was going to be eliminated. And so I guess, you, you know, from the, the Hamas side, they felt like they needed to change something. And look, uh, they probably killed any normalization agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia now because the Saudis can't let the Iranians be that much bigger of backers than the Palestinians than them. Yeah. And so 
this is this is really going to change things and we could be looking at a middle east wide war by the end of the year and so um there there's so many dominoes that could fall in, in so many different directions this could go uh but i don't see anything uh that that would allow a return to the status quo of even being possible at this point even under the best most favorable conditions right and that that was my point of like i i think that that would be even unlikely but like the you know some sort of peace talks or anything like that is like literally impossible without like I mean, it would take like a catastrophic war or something like that, where we're literally picking up the pieces to, uh, I, I can't even imagine what scenario would be where an American president would be like, Hey guys, let's sit down and talk. Right. Like, I, I just don't see that happening. And the reason why ultimately it goes back to, you know, Eisenhower's military industrial complex that I think these guys just simply don't care as long as the share price for Northrop Grumman and, you know, Boeing and whatever, like, I think it's that simple, right? Like I, I, and, and it's, I don't see any other way to explain the whole, the Russia thing and the Taiwan thing. And um, I think it's as simple as that. And until people wake up and, you know, realize that, and I don't know how we get, I don't know how we get to that point uh, without something really, truly horrible happening. But um, I use the phrase pivot to Asia because it's kind of like a, you know, Scott uses that a lot that what somebody in the Obama administration was like, Hey, we got to get ready to, to rule the Pacific or whatever. So like, give us like maybe a short thing on, uh, on uh, China, Taiwan and and Russia, Ukraine uh, uh, here in the next, you know, however much longer you got here, just kind of a summary on where we are on those places. Yeah, let's let's start with the money. So, by the way, there's a great article today at Responsible Statecraft by Eli Clifton, where he explains how uh, it's going to be a major boon for the arms manufacturers, the war in uh, Israel, and they're already starting to say it. And so, you know, the the war state you know, all these wars are getting tied together, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about the new axis of evil. We have uh, the the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, saying, I just wrote this for antiwar.com over the weekend. Mike Johnson says, Russia, China, and Iran are the new axis of <laughs> evil. And we have Joe Biden putting together a <laughs> massive aid package. We're going to have $61.4 billion for Ukraine. Uh, that's $14 billion for Israel. Uh, some billion, at least two billion for the Asia Pacific military buildup, and then 14 billion for uh, border security. And so th- this is all being packaged into, into one big war that we have to fight against all the bad people. And so in the Middle East, that's the, the Palestinians, the Iranians, Hezbollah, Assad, the Shia militias, the Shia militias of Iraq, and the Houthis in Yemen. And Europe, that's the the Russians, and then in Asia, it's uh, North Korea and China. And they're really, I guess, preparing to fight all these wars at the same time. Uh, The uh, military commander of the U.S. forces in the Indo-Pacific recently said that, yes, we're fighting a war in Ukraine. Yes, we're fighting a war in Israel. But guess what? We're going to uh, also be able to fight the war against China, too, if we have to do that. And so 
yeah, uh, you know, all of this is, is one giant military buildup, and it's really uh, in a crazy way being packaged in this massive World War III bill where they want to pass again $105 billion in, in one single bill uh, to fund all these wars. Hey, Aaron, did I lose you? Um, yeah, something's wrong with my camera, but I'm here. Um, so until I fix the camera, we're just going to have to see the the little dot there. Um, so um, specifically, yeah, that, that's pretty shocking that he would say something like that in regard to the old axis of evil. Uh, right. That off. I'm 47 years old. I don't think they would get to me in the draft pretty soon, but you may be in trouble. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just uh, how, how truly crazy are these people? But like um, I heard something recently on the um, uh, some poll or something that like your average man on the street in Ukraine is, is getting tired of this stuff. Like, is that, do you see any, um, chance that that could go to the negotiating table anytime soon or, or will, will the West not let Ukraine do that? Yeah, I don't see it happening before the 2024 election. The Biden administration plan is to fund the war at least through then. Uh, so I, I don't see them laying Zelensky go to the table. Now, there are analysts who, and some of them have been predicting this for months, and so I'm not sure how accurate it is that, you know, there may be some limit on how long Ukraine is able to fight this war. Uh, it's simply the West could run out of artillery shells, they could run out of men, and that would cause the, this war to come to a halt based on just a collapse of the Ukrainian or, you know, maybe they, they start to read the tea leaves and they see that, hey, we just don't have the forces for this anymore. And so then they allow Kiev to negotiate. But I, I think the Biden administration, the White House is at least going to feel like uh, his reelection in, in, you know, the election of Kamala Harris or Gavin Newsom or whoever is kind of dependent on uh, this war still be going on and being able to present it as a conflict, a good against evil that America must win and that we are winning. And so I don't see that happening, but you're right about the polling. And this, by the way, has happened uh, in spite of the fact that Zelensky has nationalized the media. And so it's not that people could, you know, read dissenting opinions or anything like that, even about uh, the war in Ukraine. And they've rounded up war dissenters early in the war. AP was going around with uh, military police of Ukraine and uh, filming them arrest people who posted things that the Ukrainian government deemed Russian propaganda. And, and so even with that level of narrative control, the Ukrainian people are uh, getting tired of fighting for this. And so you, you, I would love to see tomorrow the Ukrainian people rise up. They tell Zelensky no more, go to the table and negotiate. And Vladimir Putin is a responsible, mature enough man to realize that he can't take advantage of the situation too bad or it'll create an untenable peace and to sign a peace that is something that can set Europe up on a you know path away from deconfrontation and eventually that to actually go to de-escalation and then a return to diplomacy. It's going to take time. A yeah. lot of things have to be unwound. 
uh, a lot of stupid things have been said by people in the American government, and uh, those people need to retire and be less important. And to, you know, get all these deep state actors out it is going to take time, uh, but we can start to move in that direction once this once this war is over. And I hope it happens. Uh, the the China war stuff is really bad, Aaron. That's all I could tell you. Well, uh, let me the amount let me, of time we let, we have, but yeah, it, we got a we got a few more minutes. Let me just tell you. So I was over in Taiwan for. Uh, the first couple of weeks of October, uh, my wife's family, my, my mother-in-law is over there and her big extended family. Uh, we had a great time. Lot, I ate stinky tofu and uh, uh, all kinds of great, uh, uh, you know, uh, new row men and all the other, you know, beef noodle soup and all that great stuff. Went to a Taiwanese baseball game and it's a great place to be. I love it. I want, you know, to retire there someday. <laughs> I don't know if uh, Xi Jinping is going to allow that to happen. But uh, uh, over there, people don't seem too worried about it. Uh, I got the impression that it wasn't like a strictly taboo thing to ask people about. But uh, one of my wife's cousins, who's kind of our age, you know, gave us kind of the rundown. Um, you know, people, I get the impression and tell, tell me I'm wrong or, or fill me in. But like, I get the impression that, you know, there's a lot of money being made. There's trade between China and Taiwan there's lots of cultural ties and stuff like that. And it, it is, it is really complicated. But when I look around, like when's the last time China like actually invaded somebody like to me, I think they do more there. They rob you with a fountain pen rather than the gun uh, to, to quote an old folk song. Uh, but you know, my, my impression is that there's not going to be a war unless the United States really screws something up. Am, what, am I even close on that in your opinion? So I think if we look at just China versus Taiwan, I, I think you're probably right that it's unlikely that China would invade and they would just look to exact small concessions that, you know, incrementally add up and eventually have Taiwan act as least as like a Hong Kong, you know, pre 2020 type situation right um you know i i think that's the way beijing would like to do it i see the problem is is that you know from china's perspective taiwan is this one island but it's surrounded by so much other u.s militarism and so if, if we look at you know the american military buildup in japan and also they're really working hard to get japan and south korea to resolve all their world war ii grievances and then to you know have these two countries essentially establish an alliance and honestly when i talk about asia as much as i'm talking about china i think north korea is a, a very possible flashpoint as well and it's kind of hard to see how America could fight a war against North Korea and not upset Beijing to the point where they enter that war as well. Just with the amount of American military assets and bombing and missions that are going to be going on right along the Chinese border and in the Chinese sphere of influence. I think that's probably going to be pretty um, an untenable situation for Beijing. But if you look at the American military buildup in the Asia Pacific overall, it's just massive. You know, they've... Um, 
made deals with all these small island nations in the Pacific and are now essentially saying that we've drawn a big circle around all these countries and we could say that China has to stay out of this mass deception of the, the Pacific Ocean. But by the way, we're going to sail our warships through the Taiwan Strait because China has no right whatsoever to declare that as its own. Uh, they've really made a lot of these threats involving the Philippines as well. Uh, there's these shoals out in the South China Sea, and they probably are. Some of them are probably closer to the Philippines, but the U.S. is saying that, you know, we're going to defend Philippines territorial rights to this shoal if that means war with Beijing. And so, you know, overfishing, overfishing in the South China Sea, the U.S. is willing to go to war with Beijing is what they're saying. Uh, they're you know, putting military nuclear submarines in Australia. This is a major provocation towards Beijing. And also, you know, all the freedom of navigation operations, all the flights over the South China Sea. Now, I will say, I don't think China is going to, even if we end up with a provocation in the next few years, I don't think it's necessarily going to be a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. I think they would definitely try and probably find some success using a blockade to either exact concessions from Washington or Taipei in order to, uh, from their perspective, start to rebalance the, the situation in the Pacific. Uh, just, I, I think a blockade would be much more monetarily effective for the Chinese. You know, imagine the, the amount of resources China would have to commit to, you know, sending uh, just all these men across this 80-mile stretch of water, the Taiwan Strait. Uh, and Taiwan does have an advanced military. You know, I think it's a far more, uh, I don't want to say competent society, but, you know, Ukraine's a very corrupt state and, and yeah. has been since it, it became an independent state, where Taiwan is a, a manufacturing powerhouse. They have uh, some pretty advanced submarines that they've domestically built that have, uh, I think like 2,000 uh, foot depth range. And so, you know, these are, are 2,000 meter, I believe is how it's measured, uh, depth range. So, the you know, these are some pretty sophisticated subs and, and you know, they have F-16s and uh, just a, a far more competent government than than ever existed in Ukraine. And, and so I think China would probably, probably understands that and would probably take the blockade route should they, they feel that that kind of escalation was necessary. Now, if Washington starts blowing up the Chinese ships, then we're talking about war and probably a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. But, you know, maybe at that point, cooler heads would prevail and uh, they, they would work out some kind of diplomatic negotiation. But uh, I, I think, you know, when you look at China, that wouldn't necessarily invade Taiwan to take Taiwan back. But if it's becoming a massive American aircraft carrier off the coast of China yeah. and they have all these other military assets in the region carrying out all these other provocations, Taiwan is probably the place that Beijing is best able to push back against America, strike a real blow and maybe force the Americans to negotiate. Yeah. It's, it is one of those things where, um, you said you use the phrase cooler has prevail and I don't see them. And uh, again, I, I really think that their people are just motivated by power and money and they really don't care what they are willing to risk the absolute worst. Um, and so I think that it's, you know, whoever's actually running things 
uh, for Biden, uh, we're all at their mercy for the next few months. And then it, it seems like if you'd have told me 10 years ago that I'd be secretly hoping that, you know, that Donald Trump would maybe get reelected uh, and that things might be a little bit better with him. Like yeah, I, I, I'd have told you you were crazy and I don't even know if I believe that now, but like, I mean, is there, I know this is, you've got nothing to go on here, but what do you think uh, a Trump second term foreign policy uh, would be like? My, my gut is that the deep state would just double down and, and do Russiagate or worse. They might, go for something more, you know, final, shall we say. Uh, but, uh, uh, but maybe I'm wrong. What, what, what's your, where are we going to be here three or four years from now? Do you think? Oh, sometimes it depends on the week, right? Because yeah. the Republicans really aren't as bad as the Democrats on the war in Ukraine. And so if we we're talking about a month ago, it, Trump looks far more appealing. I wouldn't vote for him, but at least you you know you could look at Trump and say he might end the war in Ukraine. And again, not enough to vote for him or support him or anything like that, but that is something that could happen under Trump that wouldn't happen under Biden. However, the the Republicans are far more uh supportive of both China are the wars against China and Israel. And so oh, no, the war for Israel, not the war against for Israel. Israel. Right. Yeah. The war for Israel, the war against China. And so I I mean it looks so bleak right now. You know, for a while RFK Jr. was saying some interesting stuff, but he seems a complete sellout on a lot of these issues. And uh you know Dennis Kucinich is no longer his uh, campaign chairman too, which I think kind of strikes a blow for those of us who really hope that, you know, this guy gets elected and goes and shakes things up. I think his like yeah. daughter-in-law who's in the CIA is now, or wasn't the CIA is now <laughs> running his campaign. Uh, so that, that optimism is kind of gone as well. Of course, you know, the libertarian candidates, there's, there's some interesting guys out there. I'm still kind of reeling from the whole Dave Smith thing um, and uh, what could have been, uh, in the blow that might have struck to the, the war state. But, you know, I'm hoping one of these guys really, you know, catches fire on the war issue and really uh, starts to, you know, speak in a message that not just gets some Mises caucus libertarians excited, but, you know, in the way I thought Dave would really start yeah. to rally normal Americans to be like, you know what? I am tired of these stupid wars and I'm not sending my child to fight another one and I'm not voting for any single person who's going to do, do so. And uh, I, I just, I'm not feeling that yet, but I'm hopeful. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, the, the best, I guess that we could hope for is just that something happens. The American people start feeling differently one day, but I, I don't see any reason why to be optimistic. Uh, maybe ask me in a week. I'll feel better. <laughs> Yeah, Rechtenwald has been great on this as far as being non-interventionist. Um, I really like him. And um, yeah, I'm as sad as you are. I mean, Dave, this would have been Dave's moment and he he missed out. So uh, we're all uh, we're all doing our best. And I'm glad that uh, you and Scott and uh, Connor and Dave and all the Libertarian Institute and Antiwar.com, I know it's not full overlap between those two great institutions, but uh, I really enjoy the fact that you guys are doing that great work. I did want to throw a comment up here from Jessica uh, in Colorado. She had that nice to say for you. That's Jessica Fenske. 
who, good luck, she's running for city council in Arvada, California, uh, Arvada, California, sorry, Arvada, Colorado. And I hope she wins. And we've got, I think, about 12 to 15 Mises Caucus endorsed candidates running, uh, 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 I guess it's next week is election day. And I think we're going to have at least a couple of victories. Um, those of you who want to help us out, take humanaction.com and uh, follow the donate link and all that. But uh, it's going to be uh, the Project Decentralized Revolution thing. It's a it's a long game and it's uh, it's working. It's a slow and steady progress. And um, I, I'm excited about what's going to go on, but um, there's no magic bullet. Uh, we're going to elect a horrible president next year, no, no matter who wins. And you guys are going to have lots to write about uh, over at antiwar.com and Libertarian Institute. And I'm glad you're you're going to be a part of that for a while. Um, everything else going good with you? Um, you're, you're just busy and you just keep putting it out every day, right? Yeah, busy. Uh, definitely miss the, the the crew out in Colorado. And uh, if only Jess could run for president in 2024, I had hope. At least she would uh, make the anti-war movement sexy again. But yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I guess she's just going to be uh, running in, in Colorado and be on the city council in Arvada, which is awesome. Uh, by the way, huge congrats to uh, uh, some of the great libertarians in Colorado. Em- Andy and Emily got married this past weekend. Uh, that's Andy Bukovic. Um, I'm oh, sure okay. you know him from Facebook yeah. or Twitter or something. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the, the Libertarian Institute, we're publishing Tom Woods' forthcoming book. So that's pretty awesome. You held up Sheldon's Richmond uh, Richmond's book during the show, uh, Coming to Palestine. That's a Libertarian Institute book. We have a brand new book out on the coming conflict with China uh, by Joseph Solis Molin. Yep. Uh, so check that out. Enough Already, Scott's latest book. And we'll also have Provoked scott's forthcoming book yeah when's that coming out oh boy i don't i can't say Uh, (laughs) ask scott he'll give you a pretty long answer we also got books coming out uh by keith knight and a couple books on syria okay and i apologize my main camera and mic crapped out on me about 20 minutes ago so i probably don't sound as good as i did uh, if i ever sounded good but uh uh, i think uh, liam mccollum is gonna interview joseph solis mullen pretty soon for one of the non-live episodes of Decentralized Revolution. So that will be great. And uh, yeah, so all of you guys running, like Jessica, um, everybody uh, keep running hard. I want to see some victories next week. And uh, uh, I appreciate you coming on, Kyle. And uh, uh, yeah, just keep doing the great work. And uh, on days when I'm not depressed, I, I go over and listen to you guys and uh, to get my news and uh, when I'm strong enough to handle it. So um, I just, yeah, keep up the good work. All right. Thank you very much, Aaron. All right. See you, Kyle. Bye-bye. See you.